Welcome to the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We are your hosts, Parker Doman and Stephen Craig. This is episode 216. I don't think we'll ever do that the same way ever again. No, never again. No. Um, anyways, what's up, Stephen? What's going on? What <laughs> What is going on in the wild world of Denver, Colorado? I, I mean, everyone's on lockdown right now. This is yeah, it's uh, getting pretty close to that here in Houston, too. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's pretty much everyone shut down at the moment and we just got the word yesterday that all restaurants and bars and uh things of that sort are shut down for eight weeks so we're all all of us who can work from home are uh it's kind of actually it's funny because i'm still going into the office because i'm like they put me way in the back corner and um I, I have to run the mill, and so, like, I'm a machine operator, so I, I get to go in, and it's kind of nice because my machine runs on 100% ethanol, so, like, <laughs> it's super clean all the time, and, like, I have ethanol all around me, so I can just spray everything down, so I'm still going into the office, but it's also kind of nice, too, because since there's nobody there, today I set up a whole bunch of desks, and I made, like, a super engineering bench all around me, because it's just going to be me. I got every piece of test equipment. I got microscopes. I got everything going on in my little area. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that that's that. Um, yeah. yeah, that's why I've been doing. I've been working from home. Yeah. Uh, my favorite thing was is that meme where it's like, um, when, when you find out that how you live your life is the quarantine protocol... <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I've already been doing this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I, I, I probably spend, I don't know, uh, right now, a third of my life in my basement. Uh, so, and the other two thirds are at work. <laughs> um, no, no, you know, we're all joking right now, but I think it's important to note, just like everyone stay safe. Don't do dumb things. Uh like just consider what you're doing and if you know i heard a uh, a talk radio um guy was talking about it's like still go out and take a walk like you can still go enjoy the sunlight you don't have to be a cave troll this entire time like the the sky's not necessarily falling and you can still go enjoy things like that just you know be be mindful of what you're doing at all times yeah uh one of the biggest pieces of advice i've seen or i guess listened to was Pretend that you have the virus and don't want to spread it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes, you can go out and go for a walk because you're not going to give it to anyone while going for a walk. Unless you're like, go to like the Boston Marathon or something. (laughs) (laughs) If that's your idea of a walk, that might, you might spread the disease that way. But walking around your neighborhood by yourself with your dog isn't going to harm anyone. I think we should call this the introvert's uh, disease just because, like, everyone else has to now become an introvert. <laughs> like, it's it's government-mandated introversion. <laughs> but but here's the thing. We should all be getting all of our projects done in the next two months, right? If you can get all the parts for it. Yeah, well, yeah, true. I mean, the, uh, the Postal Service is still working, I suppose, for some time. Yeah, I, what was it? The, the thing you have to worry about most is the Waffle House Index. What's that? So the one of the last businesses to close is Waffle Houses, <laughs> which is for those that are not in the states, a Waffle House is like a really inexpensive breakfast diner that serves breakfast foods twenty four seven. Oh yeah, it's the kind of place that you go into it and like half the people are smoking in there, and the 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 the, the person who's serving you is also smoking. You know? Yeah, yeah. What do you want, hun? You know, They're like trucker <laughs> stops kind of thing. Yeah. Um, 
And so it's the seriousness of a natural disaster in the United States can be gauged off the Waffle House index. Whether or not Waffle Houses have closed down or not. Got it. Got it. Um, Mainly it's used for hurricanes. Uh, I did. I, I was not aware of this. I could see a Waffle House being like a place where you're sitting on those old benches. You're, you know, it's like three in the morning. You were out drinking all night long, and there's like mushroom clouds in the background, and they're like, "Nah, we're still open." So, open. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually haven't looked at the Waffle House index for the coronavirus yet, but I'm gonna bet you there's some rules for it. Oh, probably, yeah. Well, so, I mean, technically, I guess they're supposed to be shut down, right? Yes. Yeah. So that that's when you know it's bad when the Waffle House near you shut down because of coronavirus. <laughs> um, so speaking of projects, Stephen, that we were getting done. Yeah. What are you up to? Well, okay. I've been talking about the CNC for a few weeks now, and I I uh, basically got it finished. I say basically because there's just like a few small odds and ends, like zip tying some cables together and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I got it all uh, working and uh, things are go- are going well with it. So I ended up calibrating the three axes, which were uh, because I had already built the machine, they were pretty close. Uh, this time I used a dial dial mic and got them a little bit closer. But I was we're talking about like uh, changing numbers, a few pulses out of a thousand, just to mm-hmm. get them a little bit more accurate. Um, so I ran. Previously, I had, I don't know, I had some really crappy cable management on the machine. I had virtually no you, cable You management. had no cable management? Yeah. Like, I remember on... No, no, I mean, I had some things that were, like, they were, uh, like, taped to the machine. <laughs> so, I remember when you, when you had to traverse the entire gantry across the, the bed, like, yeah. you had to pick up the cables and kind of, like, shuffle them along by hand. Well, uh, yeah, and and when you had seen the machine, that was after I'd actually taken some of the cable management off, uh, just because like it was it was old and crappy. Uh, so the cable management was worse than doing it by hand. <laughs> no, 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 it was better than that. I had actually taken off what was there previously by the time you had seen it. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Uh, just there was a handful of reasons for that, but. Um, so I I went over to a local wood store and uh, got some, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, dust vacuum dust hose, you know the the, okay. the kind of hose that's like vinyl, but it has an actual spiral of of uh, steel in cable it. in it. Uh, so dust collection hose. It's really fle- hose. Uh, flexible and it works pretty well for this. So I actually just made a U bend in that instead of buying E chain. Um, I didn't want to go out and buy a whole bunch of E chain because like I just don't want to spend the money on that. And these were like ten bucks for a tube, and I can just pass everything through that, and it ends up working fairly well. So uh, I just used some hose clamps and and screwed those into the back of my gantry, and that ended up working fairly well. So you know, cheap solutions for things that I just don't want to spend a bunch of money on right now. Um, so I got the spindle control going, which that was kind of like the biggest thing that I haven't done before with this so it runs on a uh basically the computer pwms the vfd and then the vfd reads that in well i apologize the computer pwms my small breakout board and then that breakout board spits out a zero to ten volt control signal and then that goes off as an analog signal to the vfd and that controls things from zero to twenty four thousand rpm um, and it's actually kind of cool because you know if i want to set it up to to do a hundred hertz it'll actually spin at a hundred hertz uh and and there are some situations like well really probably the slowest i'll, I'll go is a thousand rpm um 
I said hertz, RPM. We're talking about spinning things, not electrical things here. Uh, so <laughs> 1,000 RPM I use for my um, edge finders. Uh, so I have little spinning edge finder things, and I don't really want to take them up at 10,000 RPM. That's why, like, oh, yeah. well, because it's just, it's, it's just spring on the inside. I don't want to deform anything, and they're meant to be super accurate, and, and 1,000 RPM has worked well for me in the past. That's one of the reasons why I got a water-cooled system is so I could do things like uh, edge finding. That's actually uh, one reason why I want to eventually upgrade my my drill press to a VFD get it put a three phase motor on it and then put three phase uh, a VFD because you can spin the drill press at like 10 rpm which is really good when you're you know trying to bore a uh, a large diameter hole in like sheet metal or metal like aluminum like we're trying to use a big hole saw spinning it really slow is uh, pretty important. Yeah, and and with VFDs you can program in whatever torque curve you want, or you can program constant torque, which is super convenient. So such that it can basically ramp its torque up or ramp its power consumption up if it detects a heavy load, which is awesome for cutting through metals. Because uh, then it's it it's a little bit more independent upon like you pulling and pushing force into the metal. You get cleaner cuts that way. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you have a full like stand-up uh, drill press, right? Yeah, and it's it's one with a, a. It actually has a CVT in it, so it has like a big lever on the side that adjusts the the pulleys inside. Like it tightens them or loosens them. Oh, that's and It has cool. a belt in there. Um, it works pretty well, but it only goes down. I think the slowest it goes is about three hundred RPM, which is that's pretty fast. It is still a little fast for some of the cutting I do. Um, yeah. Especially if I do, if I'm doing like anything over uh, an inch in diameter, like a bore, um, it makes it makes the bit walk a bit. I bet. Yeah, a little bit. Like it's jarring. mainly uh, the biggest problem is if I start using step bits, you start to burn step bits pretty good. Yeah, step bits don't like to go at blinding speeds. No, they don't. And 300 is on like the edge of being too fast for those. So I'd like to be able to step it down some more. It's like, oh, I could have spent some more money and. You know, got one that that went slower, that had more gear reduction, but or you could spend even more money and put a VFD in. But it. but you get the constant torque, yeah. which is uh, I actually have never seen a, I guess prosumer grade drill press that has that. So I'm just gonna make one. Constant torque is just how hard you're pulling down on the the lever, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Manual constant torque. So yeah, uh, so I got the the spindle up and up and running, and I'm, God, I love how quiet these things are. So my CNC is in my basement, which I put it in a corner that just made the most sense for the basement. But you know, twelve feet vertically upwards is my living room where uh, my wife watches TV, and I, I was surfacing my my CNC table, and I went upstairs and I was like, hey, did you? Uh, did the CNC bother you? And she's like, the what? I was like, yes, it's quiet enough. <laughs> <laughs> so she could watch TV straight through it, which is awesome. Uh, so I, I glued a whole chunk of MDF to the, uh, to the table and did a surface on it. So the other day I picked up a four flute, two and one thirty second inch diameter surfacing bit. Uh, so one thirty seconds kind of weird. It is kind of weird. I, I don't know why, but is that, a, that must be a metric. Probably. Size. Yeah. Yeah. I bet you if you put a, uh, a uh, 
caliper on it, I bet you it's a metric number. I wouldn't surprise me just because it's odd. Yeah. Um, but with with two inches, I mean that's that's it surfaces the board pretty quickly. Uh, so I I took that bit at twelve thousand RPM, which is pretty damn fast for a bit that big. But everything I researched, like people were like, "Yeah, go fast. This this thing's fine," and uh, it it seemed to work pretty well. I was also pushing it into the material at a hundred inches a minute, which is one and some change inches a second, uh, and it seemed to eat the board alive. It produced a really fine dust that went freaking everywhere in my basement, which sucked. I should have had my vacuum hooked up, but I wanted to watch it and uh, and listen to it uh, in case I heard anything weird. So, I don't know. I had to spend a bunch of time yesterday just vacuuming up a really fine powder of glue and sawdust everywhere, which sucks. Uh, but I also took it at about five thousandths to ten thousandths of an inch depth of cut, and honestly, I think I could go faster than 100 inches a minute. A lot of people were saying this bit, they, they take them to like 200 to 600 inches a minute, which is 600 inches a minute is 10 inches a second. You know, like that's yeah, yeah. fast. <laughs> I'm not going to go that fast. I guarantee you it would not hold up to that. But I might be able to go 150 to 200 inches a minute on it. Um, that's pretty fast for a CNC like mine. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I am just taking a skim cut, so... Um, I got to do a little bit more surfacing tonight because I left a little strip. Um, wanted to make some simple changes, so I'm gonna do that tonight and just get everything done on that, and then start cutting some calibration blocks. Um, I already calibrated all the axes and everything like that, but now I'm gonna start cutting some squares that are like you know five inches by five inches, measuring that I actually cut five inches, five inches. But the biggest thing that I'm worried about, and the the hardest thing to like actually account for is squareness like if i cut a, a square is it square on all four sides yeah do you have 90s or do you have 91s yeah exactly um i'm not worried about the the accuracy of of the axes they're they're good i can already tell you that uh from what i've measured but i am somewhat concerned about the squareness and so I ha I'm going to start by cutting some small squares, make sure that they're good. And then eventually I want to put a, a thing down and cut a four foot by four foot 90 and see if I'm cutting four foot by four foot. And that's going to be difficult. So um, I don't know. I'm going to try to get that running tonight. Um, so, you know, actually, uh, I think I sent this to Parker. I haven't uh, posted it up in the Slack channel yet. I need to do it. Last week I talked about MIDI to G-code. And uh, we talked about putting meatloaf, bat out of hell, into it. I totally did it. It does work. Doesn't <laughs> sound very good. <laughs> like, it's just not, like, it, it, that song is not intended to be played on stepper motors. Yeah, yeah. And it was also eight channels of MIDI going into three separate stepper motors. So the you way the G-code is created is it has to, like, prioritize notes. And it's, like, jumping all over the place. Uh, so it's not fantastic, but I did, I did pull it off and play "Bad Out of Hell" on my CNC. A hey, uh, Kerman on our our Slack channel has a uh, posted a a Thingiverse link to printing a a Tetris block on your 3D printer that has embedded the te Tetris theme into the servo motors. I saw so that. It will actually still print a Tetris block too. That's incredible. I, I like I 
I can understand the whole, like, what I did with the MIDI to G code, where it's just prioritizing, like, I have to turn this motor at this rate to get this tone. But on top of that, with with the, the Tetris piece, like, it also has to print. Like, how do they pull that off? I'm not entirely sure. I think it just changes the frequency that you're running your motors at. It well, still has, yeah. yeah, the going from X point to y, to y point is still the same. It just changes. So it's continually changing the speed that it's moving at. So it's probably not the best print. Oh, it's probably a garbage <laughs> print. But um, I was going to actually print this probably or try to print it uh, uh, tonight. Does it does it tomorrow. print one Tetris piece or does it print all the Tetris pieces? It just prints one. Oh, okay. It, it okay. prints as a Z block. Cool. So I, I don't know those rectilinear those like really square pieces are probably easier to do that kind of thing with because you know you have like really nice ninety straight lines to calculate everything with. So, so yeah, the uh, CNC is working. I'm I'm super happy with it. Now I can actually start doing other projects with it now. But hey, I said earlier this year that like my my goal was to like commit to doing a thing and then like ripping through it, and I've been. So far, so good. We're three months in now, and I'm accomplishing crap. Uh, so so uh, I got another thing. An interesting thing we talked about last week was the spindle wiring and the cables that connect to the spindle. And uh, we had, well, I, I, I guess both of us had sort of mentioned a little bit of confusion around properly grounding and properly shielding the VFD cables that connect up to the spindle. So your VFD to your spindle path, uh, it's a three-phase connection, but then you also have a fourth conductor, which is a ground, but then you also have a shield. Uh, the ground is pretty easy to to, make, to work with, but like, what do you do with the shield? Do you ground it at one end? And if so, do you ground it at the VFD side, or do you ground it at the spindle side, or do you ground it, ground it on both sides? And uh, Parker and I kind of talked about it last week and uh with our experience when it comes to shielding the the common thought behind that is to ground one side of a shield uh so you don't get ground loops and so you don't also have ground current flowing through the shield effectively the way to think of it is that like think of like having a tubular extension of your chassis that flows over uh, whatever conductor you have. And that's been my my entire experience with shielded cables is like, oh, you ground one side, and a lot of times, you, uh, and most of the time, you ground that at the source side. And uh, that's always worked out. But after a bit of research this week, I found out that is not correct for VFDs. So the the biggest thing is, the way I was thinking about it is, well, okay, so let, 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 let me back up. Let me put it this way. There's kind of two thoughts with shielding. Are you trying to keep something from coming into your conductor, or are you trying to keep something from your conductor from going out into the world? The way we were thinking about it is shielding, as in, like, I don't want crap from the environment to get into my center Data. conductor or conductors, which is absolutely not what is going on here. I've got a really, really, really noisy environment inside my conductors, and I don't want those getting out into the world. I don't want to radiate and spit crap out, which is the case with VFDs. Like, who cares about shielding 220-volt three-phase wire against RF? Like, it doesn't care. <laughs> like, no, like no. That's, not going, that's not doing anything. 
so the biggest thing behind this is that EMC regulations for VFDs require that you shield on both sides. Uh, or you, I'm sorry, you ground the shield on both sides. Which seems really counterintuitive at first. But check this out. Well, first of all, I have a link to some uh, a great, fantastic document about grounding and shielding, or they call it screening, uh, VFDs. You can um, the the website is iceweb.eit.edu.au. So just go to the show notes and you can click and read along with this. But uh, it's basically a fantastic document that details a lot of things about vfd emc regulations but also gives some pretty nice like here's why we do things as opposed to just saying like do this which okay so first of all in my experience that's kind of the worst aspect of researching these kinds of things because you go to like forums or you read other people and they just say just do this and there's no background there's no like here's why and it's just as easy to find another person that says just don't do that thing that this other guy says three <laughs> posts above mine you know like yeah, yeah, yeah but neither one of them justify why exactly you know it's it's at least we have this document that goes into it because when we talked about usb shielding oh ages ago like yeah. should you tie your shield to ground or whatnot like the usb spec says use your common sense to, to make that judgment call. It's <laughs> yeah. like it doesn't. They wash their hands. Yeah, it's not in the specification at all for that. Right. <laughs> well, and once again, like USB, which is what? 5 volts, 500 milliamps versus VFD, which is 220 volts, 2200 watts. You know, very different game. Yeah, and that's that's the power aspect, though, is the most, the most thing you're trying to protect on your USB is getting that is corrupting your differential signal in there. Right, right, right. So uh, in that uh, in that document, if you go to pages 10 through 12, that's where they kind of detail the uh, connections between your VFD and your spindle. So once again, like the, the, the rule is that you connect on both sides. Now here's the thing that kind of gets confusing about that. If you connect your shield on both sides, your shield is now a conductor through which current can flow and just like standard normal operating current will flow. Sort of the, the, the kind of idea that goes behind that is that the majority of your current's going to flow in your main ground conductor that's inside the cable because that's going to have a lower impedance than the shield itself. Shields are not intended to have current flowing, but they can have some. Uh, so the biggest reason why you connect on both sides is actually a general impedance thing, uh, more about capacitive and inductive coupling between conductors, but also adjacent cables that are next to it. If you have only one side grounded, then you can have some really awkward impedance mismatches, and you can have uh, voltage spikes appear on that uh, on the the shielding conductor. And uh, with the exposed braid end, or it might even be foil, but mainly it's going to be braid. On the exposed end, you can actually get really high voltage spikes there that lead to arcs and uh, maybe even flashover. And so it actually ends up being a safety thing, especially if you have um, lightning surges that, that strike, you can cause huge amounts of voltage to appear on your shield unintentionally. 
but if it's grounded on both sides, you have a bit more protection against that. Uh, and one, I, it's not in this document, but on a on a different uh, website I was reading, uh, they were discussing the uh, inductance that can appear on shields that can cause, they were showing 25 to 50 volt spikes on their shields due to like inductive coupling and things like that. And the shield grounded on one end was not, uh, capable of, of draining that quickly enough. Uh, so grounding on, on both ends was, uh, was vastly superior there. And for most EMC uh, regulations, they actually have a specification for what the amount of um, voltage rise can appear on your shield. And for most EMC, it's 25 volts is the maximum uh, voltage rise you can see on that. So that depends on a lot of things uh, like sh your, your cable length and, and what kind of coverage you have. But, uh, in fact, with coverage, it's important to note that um, most EMC re also requires that your cable has 80% coverage. So make sure you specify that in your, the braid of uh, your um, your cable, if, if you can specify that. So there we go. Answered answered this uh, the problem and figured it out for home gamers like me it probably doesn't matter uh a, a huge amount but i totally built mine up to uh, up to spec and grounded both sides and i actually have in my cable tubes that go through my cnc i put at least two stepper motor control signals that are kind of bundled together with the spindle and so far there's no issues with doing that so there we go there we go yeah EMC, it'll bite you in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, on top of that, uh, I went to Belden. Uh, Belden makes a, a lot of cable and wire assemblies and, and just wire itself. Uh, and and it, they have a specific cable that is called like VFD cable or something like that. I can't remember their trade name for it. But in the data sheet for that, they actually call out like it is required that you ground both ends of the shield. So even in like the data sheet for the cables, they're they're making sure you know. Yeah. They, one of the biggest things is, yeah, arcing and lightning surge and flashover and stuff like that, but you can also cause uh, a bunch of stuff to emit into the uh, into the environment just because of the impedance of the shield itself. You can't necessarily rely on it being zero. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be your wife won't hear the CNC, but then you turn it on, and it, like, messes up the TV. Yeah, the TV's jacked up. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have another question then for that. Yeah. Is uh, you mentioned last week that sometimes the, in the spindle, the ground's not even connected. Do we have closure on that? We do. Yeah, I checked that. I checked that before connecting everything up. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of these Chinese spindles, uh, you know, that's it. That's a good point. Uh, China is um, China's EMC laws do not require VFDs to be uh, grounded, like at all. So sometimes when you buy these things from China, it's you actually get a Chinese spec one instead of a exactly. US EMC. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So is yours connected? It is. Yeah, a, a lot of people. There's there's actually like full like walkthroughs on how to take your spindle apart and ground it, uh, in case you don't. But but 
here's the thing. I bought a spindle off of Amazon, like, and it 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 smelled like Chinese from the, uh, from the from the images. You could just Wait, tell like Chinese? it was that thing. If Where you're going like, out to like make like a professional machine for, did it smell like know. wontons or did it smell like, John <laughs> Shaw chicken? Yeah, something like that. I'm not gonna go down that route right now, but <laughs> but like if you're gonna if you're gonna be building something for uh, you know professionally, like you'd probably not use one of these things, and you'd probably buy one that is known grounded instead of have to like buy it and find out if it's grounded. And now I'm really hungry for Chinese food. Well, <laughs> then go get some. But before, tell us what you're up to. <laughs> So last week we, I talked about the Python PDF stuff, um, and some people actually were sending me suggestions, which is a lot, which is really nice. Yeah. Um, but uh, most of them are ones that I've already looked at, um, so they're not really the ones I, I kind of need. I'm basically going to stick with FPDF because it does give you a native-ish way in Python to build a PDF. You just have to think in like uh, tables. You basically build tables. In the PDF, and you can layer stuff, and but you're basically building tables, and so you think your PDF is more like a spreadsheet, building it out. That makes sense, because um, every all most of the other solutions that are popular are you build a template in like HTML, and then you convert the HTML to HTML to a PDF, which is fine if you know HTML really well. I don't. Um, I barely know enough Python to get out of a you know a bag, so. I'm the cat in the bag. Right. So. <laughs> so have you actually cranked out any PDFs? Oh, yeah. Um, I I should. Uh, I should. I wonder if I would be allowed to send uh, post a screenshot. Maybe if I put some bunk data in it, it'll be fine. It looks. They look really nice, by the way. So. Uh, I'll see if I can post some screenshots or something. Um, I've already made like templates in FPDF and it works. It works performance-wise really well, so probably not going to change off of that. Um, so I moved on to my next project, which was working with Zebra printers, Ooh. which um, which are, the hardware is really nice. Uh, the software, long time ago, used to be really bad, but it looks like it's gotten better recently. Um, it still uses ZPL, which is Zebra Programming Language. This is like how you talk to the printers. Um, when you want to do something more than just like print stuff with the normal print spooler. And so basically the idea is what I need to build is I need to build a label that goes on a carton. Okay. And that label has all the serial codes of all the devices that are in that carton. So pretty in the carton itself has got a serial number too. Um, and so what I want to do is basically be like, okay, I, someone's going to scan 30 boxes or 40 boxes, right? And that records all the serial numbers, and then you hit print, and it prints up a formatted label with all the barcodes and all the serial numbers, and you slap that in the box. Oh, is this for, like, shipping or something like that? Yeah, like, logistic shipping. Um, one of our uh, customers wants a wants this as their way of doing their... Uh, tracking and stuff. Yeah, their tracking. And so, um, so I'm like, okay, we got to do Zebra. And so, uh, well, we have Zebra printers, so I started learning ZPL which isn't as bad as I thought it would be. The uh, the PDF for it, like the ZPL PDF is, that is not good. 
Because this basically goes, here's a couple examples which are not what you're looking for, and then here's all the commands with no examples of how to use them. <laughs> so nice. it's not the best document, but it does have everything. So at least you can like, okay, if I run this command, what is it going to do? It just needs more examples of of how stuff interacts with each other, I guess is a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is my... Because I, basically I wanted to build a web app for someone to be able to scan all this stuff in and then hit print and it does its thing. And so my process is, I wonder if, if, any, if anyone's got, is going to go through this or has gone through this and has a better method, let me know. Because um, I'm be probably making several of these over the next couple months is, first I use Zebra Designer 3 for developers, which that allows you to like use a GUI to like make your template. So you can say, okay, this is what my my label needs to look like. These are where all the fields need to go. And you can set those fields up to be numbers or you can do variables, which are stuff that you're going to be sending, like replacing data with. So like your, uh, like all the serial numbers, that's that's your variables in this mm-hmm. case. Um, and then you use uh, Zebra Designer 3 to push that template over to the printer. So you can say, this is my printer and I'm going to load that template into its memory. So now the now the the printer knows that about this template exists, um, and then you can use I use Zebra Setup Utilities software, which allows you to talk to the printer like directly with ZPL, like as like a command line kind of thing. So you can like send it a code block and it will execute it and do nothing or do something. Um, can- I wish there was a little more debugging in that. Like if you sent that something incorrect, it would just because right now it just does nothing. Oh, right? so you don't know. You don't know if you did something oh, wrong or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you did something correct, it will do what it, you told it to do, and it will, like, you know, in this case, spit out labels with the variables filled out. Can, can you do general housekeeping, like uh, scan your ports and say, like, which printers are here and can, like, and then... Yeah. Okay, so, so you, you can, can at least that. give the user feedback being like, yes, I see a printer. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Honestly, like I know that sounds really simple, but in many cases you don't get that, and it becomes a giant correct. pain. Yes, you are correct. Yeah. Um, and then I'm using the Zebra Browser Print SDK, which is like a. I guess the best way to explain it is because I'm using the printer in USB mode, so I'm using it as like a web USB bridge thing. Because how a lot of the how a lot of the stuff works for Zebra is it's designed for a print server, and so you print to an IP address. Yeah. And so you have to make this USB printer a web address or a local web address. So use uh, the browser print SDK to that's what you're writing uh, your your um, your script, I guess you can call it, or the your your web app in. It's basically JavaScript. You're mm-hmm. writing JavaScript. And then you write a little bit of HTML that formats the web page. And then to make that actually work, you need to use a web server, which kind of sucks because then it's like, oh, I have to spend a web server, blah, blah, blah. Well, Chrome actually has a couple like extensions that allow you to just make a web server hmm. on your like in your browser. And so I'm using web server for Chrome. Um, and you just basically point that to your local folder that's got your JavaScript living in. And then you hit go, and it spins it up, and it gives you an IP, a local IP address, and you click it, and it it works. <laughs> Actually, this stuff blows my mind half the time. That's awesome. 
Um, so I, I actually wrote a little tiny application just to test it. Like I basically made a web f a, a text block that says if I paste ZPL into here, send it, and that worked. No. I was like, oh yes. <laughs> so now I needed to go the extra step and make like forty blank fields that all the serial numbers go into, and then a button that just packages that up and sends it off. That's the next step, which is frankly the easy part. <laughs> so wait, what, what's what's the user like? How does the user actually use it? Like, do you like navigate Barker. to this and then scan and then press print? Yeah. So you it would just be on the computer that's designed. It, there'll be a computer there that's for this process basically mm. and there's a barcode scanner and they just scan all the boxes that's going to be in there and it fills out all the fields on the on the web app and then they click print on the on the web app so so if they when they click print does it just erase all the fields so you can do it again okay cool you know okay here's the thing what what you all just described right there that that in my opinion is or, or my experience, like talking to electrical engineers, like that is what electrical engineers do. Like <laughs> go into work, a customer has a requirement, you have to go find some random ass document with some kind of like weird thing that you have to study and learn so you can accomplish this one thing. It's not like calculating filters all day long or like doing like at least that's my PCB layout job, yeah. every day. It's like this is more of what you do. Yeah, this is this is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like it's but uh, but what I'm saying is like it's my experience talking to other engineers or even observing other engineers. Like it's a lot of this. Yeah, I actually like this a lot. This is something I've never done before. Like I haven't written JavaScript in twelve years. Nice. <laughs> so I, I'm like, okay, got to remember how to write JavaScript. Thumb, thumbs up uh, or thumbs down? Eh, it's okay. In the middle. I I'd rather write for some. I, like I'm in Python right now. I was really hoping. Apparently, there are some Python library, uh, Python modules, not libraries, modules that work with Zebra. But it's Zebra's documentation is all for their JavaScript stuff. So basically, everyone's just making Python wrappers for it, and there's not a lot of documentation for it. That stuff. So it's just easier just to just do this instead. Right, right. Just, just it's easier to just learn an entire brand new thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is. <laughs> And so I spent, it probably took me about two days while I just described to get that working. And so hopefully, like, I want by Thursday, I want, like, the application to be done. So, which it's funny. It's like, I've, I've actually talked to, like, a software developer. They're like, oh, yeah, I can hit that out in 30 minutes. Well, yeah, because you know this stuff. This is stuff I had to go figure out. Right. From scratch. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think I might actually put an article together on this process because it's actually really useful because like making a template building labels out like this is something you can you can apply to a lot of different uh fields and applications and you know it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like there's like one source of like i had to go read like 80 different like um stack uh exchange like Yikes. questions to figure this out <laughs> And like even Zebra themselves are like, here's all the stuff, and it's just like I, I need like a like do this, do this, do this, do this, and this, and that works. You know, I'm I'm a little bit surprised. What you're asking for seems like a really simple function that seems like it would already have a built-in thing to do. Mm-hmm. But I guess it doesn't, right? No, I couldn't find anything that. Well, it's a specially formatted template too. Yeah, but I mean, still like. 
that seems like something where like zebra printers are scan and print is what they do right? oh yeah 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 so uh, no this is this is seems to be kind of the way to do it yeah and it's actually not that i probably made it sound more complicated than it is like after i did it once i set this up on another computer in about one minute you yeah. got it all working so it's um it actually works really well that's cool no. that's always something yeah. to take to your next job if you have yep. one if I have one, exactly. <laughs> no, we're totally gonna be uh, totally gonna be using this for other, you know, customers and stuff. Because now it's like, okay, this is that. It's like the eight billionth feather in the hat at this point, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's useful, that's for sure. It is very useful, and now it's like, okay, now this is something I can do. So when someone says, "Hey, I need this," blah blah blah, I'm like, I can rock that in like an hour or two. Get that working for you. So. Yeah, now the RFO. Okay, yeah. Well, and we only have one RFO this week. It was a fun little video that I found. I found it on the um, Amp Hour subreddit, but uh, it's from the subreddit. It was just a YouTube video that was up there. And uh, this is Keysight that was showing kind of the analysis of a $1 switch mode power supply that they had found. I don't remember exactly where. Maybe it was an Amazon thing or an Alibaba or something like that. It's but. probably eBay. It's a it's a one dollar power supply, and they go through. It's a six minute video of them just like detailing tests on the supply. So things like power up, uh, switching, and stuff. I just open up the video, so yeah. it's a one dollar power supply that they're using like a forty k scope to analyze. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> the, uh, the funny thing is, okay, get this. I was watching the video, and the entire time, like I was like not even paying attention to what he was actually testing. I was like. Wow, that oscilloscope is really fast. Like fast isn't <laughs> like you press buttons and it automatically does what you do when yeah. you're pressing it. I'm sure everyone here has messed with a, a oscilloscope where like you you turn a knob and then you have to wait a second and a half for it to do anything, or like you pull up a menu oh, like and it's mine. like so slow to like come in or whatnot. Ugh, it's awful. Uh, but yeah, no, this this scope is incredible. But yeah, check this video out. It's pretty cool. One of the reasons why I was even kind of bringing it up is just because it shows a really cool... It shows somebody going through some generic test for a power supply, and it, and it might even be something you could use on one of your designs. Like, a lot of times, you know, you got a TI webbench, you need to design a power supply, or you design your from scratch, or you read a data sheet, and it says do this, this, and this, and then you put it on a PCB, and you turn it on, and you go, okay, there's power. Like... <laughs> what do I test? You know, this is a great example mm -hmm. of like a handful of tests you can go through to validate and actually show your boss. Oh yeah, I totally tested this thing. It is great. Yeah, yeah totally we're, works. We're good to go. <laughs> yeah, and, but uh, at the end, like the conclusion is, this one dollar power supply is actually not half bad. You know, it, it actually like for you know, I, I wouldn't put it in a device, but for like a little project thing, it's fine yeah, for hacking stuff around. I mean, that's what's in the that uh um. 3D printed uh, thermal uh, detonator. Thermal detonator. I built. It's got a little cheapy power supply in there. Yep. So. Hey, they work, right? Yep. Actually, in my CNC, in order to control the zero to ten volt analog signal for the spindle control, I needed a twelve volt power supply. Um, and what sucks is the the con control board I have only takes thirty volts maximum input, but my stepper controller is 36 volts so i needed a step down so i found a step down on uh on amazon 
snag that. It's basically this exact same power supply, yet it has a little uh, voltage readout um, as a display and some slight other features. So I, I, I have that run into my CNC, and it works plenty fine right now. Well, I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> I think mine was five. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, check out the video. Pretty cool. So that was the MacFab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dolan. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Be safe out there, everyone.